the, then the thing that really sets me off is, well, once we have a vaccine, then everything will go back, back to normal. To normal. Yeah. And I say, <laughs> you mean like the flu vaccine that's 8% effective? I catch if, I mean, if I had a brake pad manufacturing company for cars and my brake pads were 8% effective, I would be out of business. George Floyd was not taken out because he was black. George Floyd was taken out because he was owed major drug money by Derek Shaver. When you're making vaccines that are 8% effective for the flu that you have to change every year, which, by the way, give most people that take them the flu. Mm -hmm. And you're going to tell me that this new, and they can't sue, you can't sue them for this without going through the VAERS court, which is a joke. And you're going to tell me that once we have a untested, brand new, rushed through vaccine, then everything is going to go back to normal? Good luck with that. I'll tell you what, they're going to test it in Africa like they're doing, kill a bunch of Africans, pay them off $1,000 per person, which is the maximum that they have to spend if they kill somebody. So they already know that because it's way cheaper to kill them there than kill them here. found out what the Chinese Communist Party, the Red Dragon, is doing to these people and have been doing to these people for the last 20 years in China, sending hundreds and thousands of innocent Falun Gong practitioners, Uyghur Muslims, house Christians, and Tibetan Buddhists. Particularly, 95% of um, the victims are Falun Gong practitioners to these state-mandated hospitals, concentration camps, death camps, military facilities, uh, military facilities run by the Chinese military at the behest of the, of the highest-ranking officials of the Chinese Communist Party to create a illegal sanctions forced organ harvesting business hey how's it going everybody welcome back to another episode of the truth defender podcast we are coming to you from the greatest country in the world deep in the heart of the lone star state dallas texas i am your host paul aguilar really appreciate you guys stopping in uh, if you guys are watching us on youtube Please go ahead and make sure you all subscribe and hit that bell icon so you never miss an episode in the future. Also, hit that thumbs up button as well. That'll really help us out. Uh, but the best thing you can do is go ahead and share this episode with everybody you know. Uh, that would really, really help us out as well. If you guys are on the go, make sure you guys uh, stop in and find us on Spotify. We're also on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, as well as iHeartRadio at Truth Defender Podcast. Um, if you guys want to follow us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Defender Podcast, uh, as well as Instagram at Truth Defender Podcast, and Facebook at Truth Defender Podcast as well. If you guys have any questions or comments for myself or our guests, if you have any guests or topic recommendations, you can email us at thetruthdefender1776 at gmail.com. Uh, today's very special guest is John Potash. Uh, John Potash has been a mental health and addictions counselor for more than 25 years. Uh, he has been featured on C-SPAN's American History TV, A&E, The Reels Channel, The Real News Network, and RT Television. He is also the author of The FBI War on Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders, uh, as well as Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendricks, Lenin, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. Uh, you can also find the film that's based on the book uh, on Amazon Prime as well. I uh, highly recommend that. It's a great watch. Uh, without further ado, Mr. John Potash, how are you doing today, sir? Good. Thanks for having me on, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, actually I read the book twice. <laughs> I've wow. actually, I actually bought that book like right when it first came out. Um, you know, I've seen all the interviews as well. I've also watched 
film, I believe, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I watched it again like two days ago. Um, so it's a great, great film as well. Um, I highly recommend everybody that uh, has no idea of actually what's going on uh, with the government and how they influence the population as well, um, which is a great read. Um, so I guess we're going to start by kind of picking through the book here and there. Um, so I guess we can all, I guess we can start mostly with um, the opium trade, right? So the opium trade um, has obviously been going on for hundreds of years, um, but most recently um, you see our troops like in Afghanistan, um, protecting poppy fields, things like that. Um, Pat Tillman, who I believe, um, who died, for those of you that don't know, uh, Pat Tillman was, an, I, I believe, a ranger. Um, but he was also an NFL player prior to that. Uh, he gave it all up to serve his country, right? And I yeah, believe, around 911 time. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I do believe that, um, uh, I wouldn't say it has something directly to do with all of that, but he was killed by friendly fire. Um, what he knew, who knows, but the poppy fields, I believe, played a big part in that as well. Um, but I guess yeah, we can he, was, start. he was reading a lot of Noam Chomsky at the time and <laughs> communicating with uh, some of these great activists like like Noam Chomsky and others and Howard Zinn. He was reading Howard Zinn and people. And he was starting to uh, write a lot of letters home, which I think were read by the military um, against the war. And he was starting to, when he was first really gung-ho for, you know, you know America and the war and their war calls because of 911, but then started turning and seeing what it was was really going on there and changing his mind. And I think they were worried about him. Yeah, especially, you know, if it was just some random soldier or something, maybe not so much, you know, they wouldn't care. But if it's somebody high profile. Um, uh, NFL player, you like, like Pat Tillman, yeah. Yeah, you can't, you know, they don't want that kind of information out there. You know, like regardless if it was true or not, just the fact that, you know, he has an audience and things like that. It's, right. They just don't want to have to deal with it. Um, but I mean, yeah, I guess we can kind of start, um, you know, with the opium trade and, you know, sure. how that got started and how that got, you know, in, into America. Yeah, so the first uh, major opium, what they called the opium wars, were known as the wars uh, against China in the mid-1800s. And it was mostly the English, but some of the American families were also involved because the uh, British East India Company had uh, been, been kind of taken over parts of India and were enslaving Indians to get uh, cheap opium and from there. And India lied along the mountain range that went from Afghanistan to the, uh, which they call the Golden Crescent area for poppy fields, all the way down to... Um, the, the Golden Triangle for poppy fields, um, or actually up to the Golden Triangle for poppy fields, which was right near Vietnam. Right. And so um, they also, it also came you know, real close to where China was. And so there were some uh, great opium fields, great poppy fields on there to produce opium and heroin. But um, at that time, uh, in the mid 1800s, China was seeing what it was doing to their population. They had a huge amount of their population that got addicted to opium. And so they, they started to ban opium sales, and the English fought a war to force them to keep accepting uh, opium sales into their country. And when the because the British um, was superior with their industrial revolution, having some superior ships, they won that those wars and really took over China. And from thereafter, and really kind of split China up to be kind of exploited by many European countries, along with the uh, top 
oligarchical Amer American families, the wealthiest American families. And there's the wealthiest American families happen to, you know, uh, to use that money to start our top Ivy League colleges. Um, they say, you know, for example, the low library is the top uh, administrative building that started in Columbia University and that Lowe's were, were opium traffickers. The Yale um, had, had top opium tra traffickers in um, amongst the Russell family. They were actually some of the biggest uh, opium trading families. Um, the Pierponts, which were intermarried with the Russells, were, you know, were, was the original family of John Pierpont Morgan, who you know, now got the largest bank in the, in the world. Um, J.P. Morgan Chase is the largest bank in the world, which is co-owned, of course, by the Rockefellers. And uh, you can look at every uh, Ivy League school and see the same thing going on with that. You know, it was the Cabots at Harvard and um, the Greens at Princeton, et cetera. So, um, but uh, that's, that was the original Opium War, but I, you can, you know, it's no coincidence, I don't believe, of course, that the two longest wars in American history were first in Vietnam and then in Afghanistan, the locations for as I said, the Golden Triangle for uh, poppy fields and the Golden Crescent for poppy fields, the two best places to grow, you know, uh, heroin and opium. I mean, opium and heroin. Right. So, I mean, I, I've kind of held this thought for a long time that that I, I believe Vietnam, you know, I mean, obviously there was nothing there. We were just there just because of the opium. I mean, do you, do you believe that also? Do you have some kind of belief of, you know, about that, you know, that we were just only there just, you know, so we can get all the opium and stuff like that. Well, they pretend that it was all to fight communism, but I think uh, it was more of a resource war, like you say. Yeah, I think it was mostly for the poppy fields, for the, crop, you know, opium crops. Now, Afghanistan, it's it's probably several things. It's probably, you know, the, the uh, poppy fields and the opium and the heroin, plus uh, pipelines and, and different other, you know, resources. But um, I think the, uh, definitely a major uh, profit motive was the uh, poppy fields and for profits and to, for social control. I mean, because when they get the, the opium and the heroin, the heroin into our country and into the European countries and, and really uh, get them in the inner cities and get them in different, you know, uh, populations where they target, that they target, it really uh, subdues that, that target population because one addict uh, creates chaos amongst a family and even a community. You know, and when you have many, many addicts, which we have now, it creates, you know, chaos in many, many communities in the United States and keeps uh, people like worrying about that more than worrying about, you know, the fact that the, the wealthiest can continue to steal our money and can get more and more power for themselves from us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so World War II ends, um, you know, everybody comes home. And then you had the creation of the FBI and CIA, you know, things like that. I mean, how, how big a part of, of that comes from, you know, those wealthiest families where, you know, they actually put up the money for all that to happen. Yes. Yeah, so, so the sources for uh, the start of the CIA, you know, the CIA started with the national security act of 1947 and the highest level whistleblower uh, from the CIA was a man named Victor Marchetti. And he wrote a book called The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence, which was, he fought in uh, court again and again over, over getting that book out. And it was still very censored, but it still came out with a lot of information. And him and a, a British magazine editor named uh, Francis Stoner Saunders came out with the Cultural Cold War, also studying the CIA's history. And they both basically said that um, the wealthiest families in the country who happened to be 
white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, um, started the CIA and put their own family members at the top of U.S. intelligence. And uh, the National Security Act of 47 said that the CIA's director uh, supervised all the other, you know, 14 plus U.S. intelligence agency directors. So it made them the basically the titular head of, of all of U.S. intelligence, you know, which is vastly powerful um, and, and continue to grow from 47 on to today. But um, that, you know, it also made them, many argue, many researchers show, show that it made them above the law because they could go beyond the law to do things for what they called national security reasons. And um, we know there's been a, a lot of whistleblowers and I have them in my film book in my film. And they basically talk about how these, uh, you know, wealthiest families that, that really profited at first from a lot of opium trafficking then went on to, you know, be dominate the banks like JP Morgan Chase being the top bank, uh, dominate the oil business with Rockefeller and standard oil and dominate a lot of other areas of, of the, of our society. And, um, and basically, in uh, it was by 1917, it was uh, noted in the congressional record that the J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller interests bought virtually all the major newspapers, like all the top newspapers in the country, the top cities, and bought many of the major magazines. And um, when you look at whistle, you know, people like uh, uh, University of California Berkeley School of Journalism director Ben Bagdikian, he says that basically. Um, six multinational corporations control 95% of our information. Um, and so that's the way they, they control our minds, our hearts and minds. But um, they particularly worry about musicians um, getting, you know, kind of getting to our hearts and minds and changing our hearts and minds the way they want us to think. And that's why I, I focus on these musicians too, along with the other activists in the book and film. Right. I mean, is, is that why we see things like Kanye having a mental breakdown, supposedly? Uh, you have like Britney Spears and I forgot that other girl's name. Um, but I mean, like, you know, like all these. Lady Gaga. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. I mean, they're, they're, they're seemingly fine before. Right. And then all of a sudden they have some kind of breakdown and they start cutting their hair and they start acting crazy. And it's, it's I mean. Well, I believe that was part of what uh, program they started in 1953. And um, so, yeah, my, my book uh, by the second and third chapter starts to get into uh, what, what I talk about the most in terms of the CIA Project MKUltra. It was uh, an umbrella project for 149 sub-projects. And, you know, the, the documents from that, sub, from that uh, you know, Project MKUltra say, the use of drugs as unconventional warfare. And people usually think of uh, warfare as in the battlefields, like, you know, you've, you've been involved and I understand you're a soldier, you're a soldier yourself. Is that right, Paul? Uh, I was in the Navy, yeah. In the Navy, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you think of warfare as either, you know, off the coast of some, some foreign, you know, land we're fighting or on the battlefield of Afghanistan or, or Iraq or Vietnam. But um, their warfare, all the evidence turns out, was against anyone who dissented against the war or anyone who fought for civil rights for people of color. And um, when, when activists you know, uh, broke into an FBI office in 1971, that's what they found. They found the counterintelligence program papers of the FBI, which worked hand in hand with Project MKUltra, because the CIA had uh, 
you know, um, also a project named Chaos, but MKUltra and Chaos both worked with uh, the FBI, because the FBI was under the CIA, and uh, the co-intelligence program followed through with some of the goals, the racist goals of, of uh, Project MKUltra, and helped with the use of drugs as weapons against uh, all you know, dissidents. And um, so now part of that was now, you know, they, they used a lot of different drugs. I was talking about opium. Of course, they used heroin. They also used cocaine. Um, but one, actually one of the surprising drugs I came across that they used uh, apparently the most was LSD. And LSD um, was the kind of drug that could, even though all these other drugs can really hurt people's lives with the addiction, the way LSD hurt people's minds and allowed for the manipulation of people um, when it hurt their minds was particularly uh, powerful for um, U.S. intelligence because they didn't want people to, to know how much, you know, how, how obvious it was that, that their minds were getting manipulated. And so what they found that that's what they could do with LSD. So um, a good, really good writer just came out with a book, for example, called Chaos about the, the Manson family. And he found that a, um, Dr. Jolly West was a um, CIA doctor that um, the Manson family was visiting um, at least weekly, if not daily, um, for about a year up in San Francisco area, and they used you know, they used LSD and hypnosis to turn these uh, kind of kidnapped. I mean, these girls that that were uh, raped and uh, as minors and messed with, their heads were messed with 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 all kinds of drugs, and they were hypnotized. To, to turn them into murdering monsters, and that's what happened. But they could also um, manipulate people, um, such as people like, you know, as you said, Britney Spears appeared to possibly be a victim of them. But I don't talk about her, of course. I, I do talk about a Courtney Love, and because her life um, kind of mirrored um, two women that testified uh, at a presidential commission hearings on these kinds of projects in the 1990s. Um, President Clinton's uh, under Secretary of Health, I believe it was, uh, Donna Shalala, I think her name was, um, held some hearings about these kinds of experiments. And two women testified with their therapists about what the torture they went through as, as little kids. And uh, as a therapist myself, I, I, I know and have been taught that the, between the ages of three and eight years old, our minds are extremely vulnerable. So when we go through major uh, trauma repeatedly, it can get to the point of us being in such pain that we, uh, our mind splits. You know, that's where they get what's called split personality. Now, we used to, it used to be called split personality or multiple personality in the uh, psychiatric you know, Bible, the DSM, you know, Diagnostic Statistical Manual 4 is what it's called now. Actually, it's where 5 now, DSM 5. Um, but they, they changed the name uh, maybe five or 10 years ago to dissociative disorder, they call it now. And when you have split personalities, dissociative identity disorder. Um, with dissociative disorder, it's a little milder and you just lose, lose track of time. And, uh, but with full-fledged dissociative identity disorder, your, your mind splits and you get into split personality. Um, you know, you've probably heard the, the classic cases like Sybil and people like that, but, um, but it look, turns out that that this uh, CIA with Project MKUltra could do that. And the best evidence is that they likely did that with Courtney Love. 
But um, that's just one chapter of the book. Of course, most of the book talks about the way that um, undercover agents uh, manipulated our, you know, our rock stars and the rap stars to, um, you know, and it could have been done with Kanye West. I believe it probably was with either uh, with ecstasy or, or acid or LSD. Um, you know, ecstasy's uh, MDMA, which was also used by Project MKUltra. But um, starting in the 60s, they had, um, there's a, the uh, assistant director of MKUltra is a man named Robert Lashbrook. And um, Ernest Hemingway's editor, A.E. Hotchner, wrote a book about the Rolling Stones in the 60s. And in that book, um, Hotchner said, that Robert Lashbrook brought loads of, of uh, agents, loads of money and loads of LSD to England in, 19, in early 1965 and pushed it and, and ordered his agents to get in as many musicians' hands as possible. Right. Now, a few months later, um, George Harrison's dentist invited George Harrison, uh, his girlfriend, Patty Boyd, John Lennon, Cynthia Lennon over um, for dinner, and he was with his uh, some Playboy playmate girlfriend of his, this dentist, and the dentist, um, you know, had them over dinner, and then said, you know, uh, you gotta stay for some coffee, and then John Lennon, George Harrison said, no, we have to leave. We have to see a friend's band. He said, you got really, you know, you have to stay for the coffee. It's great coffee. So they, they stayed a few minutes, a little more, had some coffee, and they were dosed with LSD, and uh, George Harrison and John Lennon was furious. And uh, uh, George Harrison said, what's LSD? He didn't even know what it was at that time because it wasn't as popular in England like it was in, the, in America. And so um, at that point, they you know, didn't try it again for months because they were just upset about it all. But uh, later, when it became so popular in the U.S. and they pushed it like crazy in, in England, people convinced them to try it a second time. A lot of other musicians did that, I believe, were you know, working for U.S. intelligence because of their intelligence connections. And I show the evidence of that in the book. But um, so then they all did it, but then they were manipulated to popularize it. And this is just an example because it's happened with a number of musicians. Like Mick Jagger, the Rolling Stones, for example, held out from trying LSD, you know, acid until 1967. And 1967, an undercover agent named um, Rob Schneiderman, um, he went by different names actually, but uh, that was one of them. Um, he uh, he also went by Jove, but anyway, um, it came out in a uh, in a daily you know English newspaper that he was working for both FBI and MI5 when he was known as you know at the time when he was known as the Acid King in in England because he distributed so much acid, and he convinced Mick Jagger to try acid for the first time, and when he after he did that, um, the uh, the police came in and arrested Jagger. And Keith Richards uh, just popularized in the press that they were they were you know, taking acid to try to get everyone you know more people taking acid, and that's the way they found they could manipulate a lot of people's minds. Is the more acid people took, the more you know the more it hurt their minds just in a mild way, but the more it can manipulate them too, and um, that and they of course it would sidetrack many from their good anti-war activist work. And it's also sidetracked people from their good civil, you know, uh, civil rights work. Didn't they actually have like dosing parties also? Like where they, you know, like a lot of people had no idea what was going on and they were just dosing everybody there. Acid test, yeah. Or acid test, yeah. Yeah. And so that was, um, so 
on the East Coast, well, in, in 1961, they, uh, there was a group, there's a CIA uh, project, MKUltra Front Group, that they called the Human Ecology Fund. And this came out in the top anthropological journal, you know, um, later, you know, you know just right, you know, exposing all of this, you know, in the, uh, I think it was the early, late 70s, early 80s. It only came out because um, the Senate Church Committee, you know, investigated after those activists had broken into the FBI office and found all those FBI papers and spread it to all the media and sent it to, you know, around to activists and all that. But so the Senate Church Committee came out, you know, with what found that what the CIA was doing with this dosing of people and pushing acid. And um, so it turns out they had this human ecology fund and this human ecology fund, uh, the CIA front company, gave money to uh, about 45 colleges around the country, about uh, 50 or so prisons and about 50 or so hospitals around the country. An experiment with acid on different people. Uh, Timothy Leary was one of the most famous of the professors that did some of these experiments, but it was also done at Stanford. And um, so with Timothy Leary, um, when he was doing it, uh, he was experimenting first with mushrooms and then some British intelligence agent uh, influenced him to start using acid. And, um, and then he was kicked out of Harvard two years later um, because they were, they were push, pushing so much acid and so much was going on there. And in comes to his life comes a uh, extremely wealthy family, uh, the Mellon Hitchcocks, Bill, uh, William, um, and I forget his, uh, his sister's name right off the top of my head, but Peggy Mellon Hitchcock is her name was. Um, now, the Mellon Hitchcocks were high up in U.S. intelligence, plus they owned Gulf Oil and Mellon Bank. So they're extremely wealthy, extremely involved with U.S. intelligence, and they go and fund Timothy Leary's group to have um, psychedelic, uh, a psychedelic association. Um, and they had uh, headquarters in, in that area, in this area of New York, where um, William Mellon Hitchcock basically gave Timothy Leary for pennies his estate, Millbrook Estate, an hour north of New York City. But they also had headquarters in the West Coast, they had headquarters in other cities, and they had headquarters even in Mexico, okay, pushing acid, you know, as a spiritual sacrament of some sort. And uh, so, yes, you know, Timothy Leary would have parties and invite tons of people up to um, from New York City. And I argue they were activists that were involved in the civil rights movement up to New York City. Um, right at the time, around the time of the um, Freedom Summer, you know, uh, Freedom Riders going down to the South to register, you know, people to vote, register blacks to vote in the South. So they're really trying to disrupt this, the Freedom Summer campaign of Martin Luther King and the, uh, you know, the Student Non-Modeling Coordinating Committee and all that. You know, John Lewis was one of the heads of the Student Non-Modeling Coordinating Com Committee. He was the congressman who just died recently. Um, anyway, so they were trying to interrupt that there on the West Coast. They were doing the same thing at uh, when a Stanford um, a hospital, you know, associated with Stanford University, basically um, offered a lot of money to Ken Kesey a up in, you know a guy who was in writing grad school and just about trying to make a little money on the side they they offered him 150 dollars to try lsd and um i argue that they then manipulated him thereafter they gave him a job at the same hospital um as a janitor gave him the keys to the asset supply and he bring takes the asset supply out and keeps stealing it for parties at his house Jeez. now first they were it was he was telling people about the acid that he was giving them at the party but later he um he had what was called acid tests, 
which is where they were, they, people didn't know that there was a huge vats of Kool-Aid filled with acid and people were tripping involuntarily and not, not knowing what was going on. And it just so happens that um, Ken Kesey was influenced by a number of former, supposedly former soldiers um, who got him to, to spot, to like be part of a uh, psychedelic bus ride that that bus trip left um, right when a number of freedom summer uh, buses left from the New York area and left from uh, Berkeley, California, from University of California, Berkeley. They actually left about, uh, I think the day after the Berkeley bus left for the freedom summer, you know, uh, campaign. And they headed in the same direction. They headed down South and they were supposed to be heading to New York for a, um, a gathering, like a, a, some kind of book gathering for, uh, Ken Kesey's next book. But instead, they headed through all the all the South, where the civil rights demonstrations were going on. And they headed to integrated pools, and they tried getting a number of blacks tripping, and a number of activists tripping, white activists that were coming from the North to the South tripping. And so it was it was a counter. I argue that it was a total counter to the civil rights movement, trying to to hurt their minds and not have them do their best activism. And so this continued, of course later into the later 60s where they would there's uh you know when they started having those uh parties as they called them acid test parties they would have a band they called that called themselves the warlocks then it's starting about 63 but they changed their name to the grateful dead right. and they had that there's tons of you know the kool-aid spiked without lsd some people knew it was spiked with lsd other people didn't people were tripping involuntarily and they they held a big acid test right after the watts riots in los angeles um, you know, they said that they could still smell some of the um, fumes of the smoke fumes from the Watts riots when you know, places are burning and they're getting all, you know, all these people, black activists there to trip um, involuntarily, a lot of them. Um, and so then after that, they uh, turned those uh, acid tests into beans. So they, they had hundreds and then maybe a thousand or two at the acid tests. And then at the bean, they had 10,000 people all tripping, you know, up a storm. They were promoting you know, taking acid. And, uh, and then the BNs turned into um, the, the, these huge music fests where they just got tons of people, you know, they, they pushed acid like crazy at the big music fest. Now, I love music fests, of course, and I love music, but it's just too bad that so many people were, were um, influenced to take acid at, at a number of these big, um, you know, music fests out West at that time. And um, the Grateful Dead was, you know, was really pushing it, uh, the acid like crazy. And so, so were, you know, a number of other bands were, sadly enough, they, you know, I don't know if they were manipulated to do that, or, you know, how many were manipulated, how many were paid to do that, but it was happening like crazy. Um, now with, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix and, and John Lennon, I argue they were targeted and for their leftist views. They were, they were very, both very anti-war and um so they were manipulated and targeted and then when they started sobering up um like Jimi hendrix when he started sobering up um now with Jimi hendrix was a special case because they inserted a um former mi6 agent as his manager because he got so big in england he, he, he didn't get big in the united states first probably because of all the racism right. but um in, in england he got really big really fast because he was you know obviously a brilliant guitarist and so he couldn't handle all the fame and the concert booking so so easily. So in comes this guy who um, even you know admitted he was a former MI6 agent, and all the best evidence shows he continued to be MI6. And that guy controlled Jimi Hendrix's life. 
Now, Jimi Hendrix got huge because of his incredible talent, but that guy tried to hurt his uh, career. Um, and within, and Jimi Hendrix kept trying to fire him, but he couldn't because of all kinds of financial dealing dealings. And then 48 hours, uh, after Jimi Hendrix finally fired him, uh, Jimi Hendrix was dead. And, uh, I got two people that have said that, um, when he was drunk, that Donald Jeffrey, his manager admitted having Jimi Hendrix killed, um, so, um, you know, best evidence again, uh, you know, I, which I don't have time to completely elaborate here, were though that U.S. intelligence um, first manipulated Jimi Hendrix to promote some drugs. But once Jimi Hendrix started sobering up and all the evidence shows he did, he was sobering up. Um, he, they had him killed and he was getting very active at the end of his life, um, organizing anti-war you know, activities promoting the Black Panthers in his last year, dedicating his last album to the Black Panthers, et cetera. So that's some of, of how of what they were doing. Right. And so, so you mentioned the Black Panthers. Now, obviously, Tupac was kind of being groomed to, you know, maybe be the next leader of them. Um, I mean, obviously, he didn't make it. But, I mean, what were kind of the things that were happening, like, in the background um, as far as them trying to take them down? So with uh, the Panthers... Um, we, we know what we know about the Panthers because of that break into the FBI office. Now, granted, all those FBI um, documents showed, you know, that nine, like over 95% of their, of these documents involved the targeting of leftist activists, either the, you know, civil rights movement, the Black Panthers, Black Power movement, um, the anti-war movement, etc. But uh, they most brutally targeted the Black Panthers. Um, and so Tupac's, um, mother was a Fanny Shakur and she had married, uh, Lumumba Shakur, um, who was, who had started the Harlem Black Panthers. Lumumba's, uh, childhood friend, Siku Odinga, had started the Bronx Black Panthers with, uh, Lumumba's brother, um, Zaid Shakur. And, um, so the Shakurs were a great activist family. Uh, their father, uh, Baba, you know, um, his name was Saeedine Abba Shakur, his name was, uh, had been a close confidant of Malcolm X's and was, it was, you know, highly respected. Um, and so they, um, what they did with them is they, they basically, uh, psychologically profiled Huey Newton, who was the founding, who was the co-founder of the National Black Panthers with Bobby Seale. And they figured out that, um, he could be susceptible to, um, you know, cocaine, and they got an undercover agent. Um, and uh, the best evidence is that Elaine Brown was that undercover agent that they got into his life. Um, and Geronimo uh, Pratt, the Los Angeles Black Panther leader, said that Huey Newton told him, and they both happened to be in prison together, that, uh, that Elaine Brown constantly brought beautiful women and cocaine to him all the time when he first came out of jail after a frame-up <laughs> and got him using cocaine regularly. And so he did develop a bit, a bit of a problem, but I, I believe so um, now towards the end of now. So that really um, that plus many undercover agents, plus terrible police brutality, plus raids of Black Panther offices all undid uh, the great work that the Black Panthers were doing. The Black Panthers were considered some of the best community organizers in the country. And I, and I studied community organizing in grad school and uh, did a little bit of work in community organizing and just really do believe that they were the top community organizing group in the country 
Um, the American Indian movement said they modeled themselves after the Black Panthers. The Young Lords, the great uh, Latino activist group, modeled themselves, you know, followed the Black Panthers. So the the uh, head of the Young Lords, um, Jose Chacha Jimenez, followed around Bobby Seale for a month to learn how, how he did everything he did and then copied that for the, um, you know, uh, the Young Lords setting up some similar programs. And so they did great activism too. Um, you know, both in Chicago and New York City and other, other many other cities. And um, so they were doing great work. And for that great work, sadly enough, they were targeted by U.S. intelligence and the racist U.S. intelligence for the racist oligarchs in, in our country. And uh, so Tupac grew up in that kind of family, though, when they, they tried to frame the uh, New York Black Panthers. Afeni Shakur was brilliant, and she defended herself in court and was credited with getting all of the Black Panther, New York Black Panther 21 off in court, even though they had, they had professional lawyers. She, was, she did an amazing job. And then she gave birth to Tupac in 1971, right after about a few months, maybe a month or two after the, uh, she got out of jail. And um, Tupac grew up though with Afeni and with, uh, um, now Lumumba and Afeni divorced um, after she had a fling when she was uh, let out on bail. But, um, he had an adopted brother named Matulu Shakur, and Afeni ended up coupling with, you know, and partnering with Matulu Shakur. And Matulu Shakur was an amazing man. He studied acupuncture in Canada and brought it down to the Bronx to help the terrible uh, heroin problem there. And he, he, he really pioneered, you know, uh, the use of acupuncture for um, heroin, you know, addiction in our country, um, starting at Lincoln Detox in the Bronx. And it was using, um, you know, anyway, so he did amazing work there before uh, the city closed him down for his success, sadly enough. He killed both his uh, clinic director, a psychiatrist named Taft, and a, his lawyer, the lawyer for the clinic named, um, named uh, Cohn, um, who actually also represented Asajj Shakur, Tupac's aunt. But um, so Tupac grew up around that and grew up incredibly political. Um, when a, you know, a preacher asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, he said a revolutionary when he was only 12 years old or so. And so uh, Tupac then, by the age of 17 years old, was elected the youngest uh, chairman of the New African Panthers. And that was the young adult uh, group within a new group called the New African People's Organization that was made up of former Black Panthers and former members of the Republic of New Africa, which was a another group similar to the Panthers, just doing work with slightly different strategies. Um, and Matulu was a co-founding member of that group. And so um, Tupac was already a national black leader because they were active in eight to 10 cities around the country, the New African Panthers, before he became a rapper, all right? And once he broke into rap, first touring with Digital Underground, and then uh, when he got that solo, you know, debut um, with Interscope, an upstart major record, you know, label deal, um, he started adding wealth and fame to that activism, and that made him much more dangerous. So within a day or two of uh, the release of his first MTV Worldwide release uh, single, Trapped, which was a political song on a political album, you know, Apocalypse Now was a very political album, um, police... Uh, pretended to arrest Tupac for jaywalking and they proceeded to choke him unconscious and bang his head against the curb. And I show, you know, several other cases in the news where people died in police custody for those tactics. And of course we saw with George Floyd, 
but it's happened many times over the decades, obviously. So um, the, I believe that was, you know, an attempt to hurt, maim, if not kill him, Tupac at that time. Now, after that, you had another, you know, attempt on his life with the uh, situation with the Marin City Fest, where strangers punched Tupac for no reason when he was performing, you know, right before he was to perform at this uh, 50th anniversary Marin City uh, Festival. And then they shot at him for no reason. And uh, Tupac's uh, bodyguard was Matulu's son, um, Moprim Shakur. Um, it was uh, Tupac's stepbrother, you know, Maurice Moprim Shakur. And he just shot uh, in the air to try to scare these people away. But they shot at him, at them, and uh, right in front of police at the festival. And police did nothing to stop it. And they did nothing to uh, arrest the, the uh, guys trying to shoot Tupac. And they ran. So Tupac and, and uh, Moprim ran from the, the group and just crawled under a car and that's the only thing that saved them is police arrested them because th th this group had incited a mob to try to beat up Tupac and um Maprim for no reason and um but they saved themselves when the car started getting the police car started getting messed up um and so that was another attempt on Tupac's life there was a third one that I, I'm not gonna go into it at length but uh fourth one was a situation in Atlanta where two allegedly off-duty police officers were out with their wives and uh, these brothers named the Whitwells in Atlanta. Tupac had just performed a concert in Atlanta. He was traveling with in two or three cars um, out, you know, away from the concert. And um, he comes upon a, a police you know, beating on a, a black man in front of him. And um, he said, he rolls down his window and says, what's going on? And this is by all you know witness accounts. And these two uh, white white guys in street clothes who are beating this black man um, run to his window, smash the window with the butt of their gun, and shoot at him. He rolls out the back of the car where he was sitting and grabs a security guard's gun behind them because uh, all the guards behind him, the other cars, there was actually maybe two, maybe three or four cars, got out of their cars really quickly to protect him. And so the police started running with their gun uh, pointed back at him. And, um, and so he just shot them in the butt and the legs, you know, in self-defense. He got down on one knee and shot them in the butt and legs. And um, so it was really in self-defense. And so it's, it went to, you know, it started to go to court, but it was all dropped. And the reason I argue it was dropped is because it was another murder attempt by police intelligence of Tupac. But, um, you know, it's incredible that a black man shoots two police officers in the South and get, doesn't, even, doesn't even go through court. And now it turns out that their gun they used for that was a gun stolen from an evidence locker. And it was an unmarked gun. And it was what they call a throwaway gun so that you can just, you know, make an illegal shoot, you know, have an illegal murder, put it down. It can't be traced back to you. And so um, that and much more evidence points to the fact that this was murder attempt, you know, number three or four of Tupac. Um, and so these are the kinds of incidents in Tupac's life that uh, eventually led to his, you know, his assassination by U.S. intelligence. But, um, you know, then they framed him up with the, uh, the woman. I've got, you know, I've got probably 70% of the uh, court documents from that trial and um, from the lawyers. And, you know, and it's just incredible. She admits kissing his penis on a dance floor when, you know, witnesses said it was actually a blowjob on a dance floor. They have consensual sex at night. She leaves messages. I like the way you, you know, fuck. 
I don't know if we're allowed to cuss it. Yeah, yeah. Got to go. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and they said, so please get those voicemails on the hotel answering machine. And they proceed to pretend they accidentally erased them. Okay. And, um, you know, and then he's accused of all kinds of things in court. Um, but uh, accused of, of uh, assisting, uh, you know, group sex and all this other stuff, whatever. But, you know, he was only actually, he was only charged with, he was charged with sodomy, forced sodomy, attempted sodomy, assisting sodomy, um, gun possession, et cetera. All these major charges were brought against him. And uh, in the end, he got found not guilty of everything except touching her butt against her will. And this is after they both said that they, you know, oral sex happened. So it was considered sensual, right. consensual. Um, but um, that's, so he got found not guilty of that, but touching a woman's butt after it was found that they had consensual oral sex um, against their will. And that's what he, they ended up giving one and a half to four and a half years in jail for that. You know, it's pretty incredible. But um, just before the verdict came out, they, the actual the trial was considered a failing trial for the prosecution. They thought they were going to lose it completely and get no charges to be found guilty. He was going to be found guilty of whatsoever. And um, so they actually offered it to make it a mistrial based on something, that, evidence they held back. But Tupac wouldn't accept the mistrial. So the night before the verdict, um, Tupac was asked to, um, he was out on bail and was being asked to record something at the quad you know uh studio in in times square right near times square and he's uh they you know some random muggers come in uh shoot him uh shoot him and put him down the ground then shoot two bullets in the back of his head and the doctor's affidavit said went through the back of his skull came out the front of his skull and barely he miraculously survived but um you know is he really that was assassination attempt number four or five as i say and uh, he's very lucky he survived that. Um, the uh, security guard offered the uh, video, surveillance video of these, you know, shooters to uh, police, and the police turned it down and said they closed the case. And um, these uh, these muggers. So one of the shooters said, "I was actually paid by um, Jimmy Henchman Rosemont to uh, carry this out." And um, and Rosemont, I have a government document that said he had already signed uh, with the government to be an informant for the government before this incident. So it's just, um, and he was a drug dealer. He was actually later in prison for, for drug dealing. So there's just a whole lot to all this. But Tupac was only, he, he was actually only pretending to be a gangster to appeal to gangs and politicize them. And in doing that, he was a major target of the CIA and the FBI because he was leading gangs around the country to call peace truces and turn on to activism and to stop drug dealing. You know, massive gangs around the country were cutting down on or completely stopping their drug dealing. And that took huge amounts of money out of the CIA drug traffickers' pockets, plus huge amounts of money out of the banks. And that's why they finally did him in. Yeah, that's a big no-no. Let me mess with people's money like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how, I guess real quick, how, how, where does... Suge Knight kind of fit into all this. He's a real piece of shit too, but yeah. Well, Suge Knight was um, low man on the totem pole, but the real, the real uh, higher man on the totem pole was was his um, Dave Kenner, his lawyer, because um, Dave Kenner incorporated um, Godfather Records to be the umbrella company above Death Row Records, okay. and Dave Kenner founded Death Row Records for Michael Harry O'Harris 
who was a um, one of the two assistants to to Freeway Ricky Ross. Now Gary Webb exposed how Freeway Ricky Ross was getting cheap cocaine through CIA assets hmm. through the CIA Sandinistas who were um, fighting the socialist Nicaraguan, you know. Um, government basically you know they were the contras it was part of the iran contra crack you know scandal um so um these different um cia assets who you know gary webb says was basically the, the contras were a cia funded army pretty much you know, just trying to topple the sandinistas in nicaragua and that was a that was a you know anyway so freeway Ross gets all this free you know free cheap cocaine turned to crack and one of his two right-hand men is Michael Harry O'Harris. He starts Death of Records with Dave Kenner. Then uh, he goes to jail, and Kenner runs it um, with, you know, he has you know, Suge Knight run it. Now, Suge Knight had increasingly serious charges against him with increasing penalties until there was a point in maybe 1990 or 91 where he doesn't get any more penalties for serious charges. And that's the time we, you know, it's believed that he became uh, an undercover agent. For the uh, for this program to start Death Row Records, uh, in order to traffic drugs, which it did, which um, Russell Poole, a high-level police officer who, who investigated Death Row Records, found they were drug trafficking, they were gun running, they were trying to end the Bloods Crips versus Peace Truce versus you know, Bloods versus Crips Peace Truce, which Tupac and his Black Panther extended family had started and was spreading around the country. And uh, and they were trying to to lure Tupac onto the label to manipulate him, and then when he uh, you know vowed to get off their label, when he said I'm done, I, I fulfilled my contract, they they did him in, they helped to do him in. Yeah, it's I guess it's a recurring theme, you know, when these when these guys are trying to get clean or you know they want they're trying to go straight, you know, yeah. just to have no use for you anymore, and you know they they can't let you be walking around with all that information you know knowing what you know so they just have to get rid of you i mean yeah with tupac he was just too serious of an activist he was um and he was you know he was getting clean and sober i mean he you know uh russell simmons said at a party that everybody was drinking and smoking weed and tupac wouldn't touch anything he was just dancing all night and um he had vowed to uh he got engaged to his uh you know fiance cadet Kadada jones quincy jones's daughter they were planning to have a family you know, um, he'd already fired Dave Kenner as his lawyer um, nine days before he was killed. And that's like a similarity to Jimi Hendrix, like nine days after firing his U.S. intelligence linked, you know, um, manipulator. Um, you know, they're killed you know, really soon after they're killed. And um, but Tupac was a lifelong activist and incredible activist. And he was only pretending to be a gangster in order to appeal to gangs and politicize them. That's why he might be, you know, he's more misunderstood for that the way he put on that gangster persona for that reason because right. he was really an intellectual prodigy brilliant guy yeah that's sad i mean they they, they they kind of stopped that before you know he can do any kind of damage against them i guess but yeah yeah it's 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 really sad i mean well sir i mean as we come to the end of our time here i don't want to keep it too long here on a saturday afternoon it's some great weather outside so hopefully we can all get outside this weekend but uh yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, can you please just let everybody know where they can find your work, um, you know, sure. on Twitter, things like that? Sure. Um, so, yeah, my book and film and uh, the FBI War on Tupac Score and Black Leaders book and film 
uh, can both be found on uh, johnpodash.com um, uh, or you can see, look up, it's easier, fbiwaronTupac.com or drugsasweapons.com. The website's got three names, right. any of those three names. Um, and, uh, but it's also available on Amazon. They're all available on Amazon. Um, they're, you know, you can actually order them. Uh, you should be able to order um, the Drugs as Weapons book or film at Barnes and Noble. They'll, I'm not sure that's still, uh, they're still available there, but they, they have been for years. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, if people want signed copy, I'm, I'd be happy to do that for, for anyone. Um, so, but you know, hopefully they are also at some independent bookstores around the country. Awesome. Is there any, uh, any plans in the works for a new book or something out there? Hopefully yeah, in the near future. <laughs> several new projects, several um, projects. And one is, um, with about Tupac and his mother, Fanny's Fanny Shakur's uh, trial, um, a famous trial in New York, as I mentioned earlier, um, ending with more on Tupac. Um, and I also got a uh, two new uh, a new book and film that I'm working on too, which is um, it's a little bit overlapping, but it's just more it's more humorous too. And um, yeah, if I can make any of this humorous, but um, going from eugenics to what I think is the current pandemic, just my view of things, but uh, based on lots and lots of research. Right. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, we're definitely looking out for those. Hopefully, we can get you back when you when you get those out to everybody as well. Um, yeah, so everybody, um, like I, like you said before, you can find them on Facebook at John Potash. The website is johnpotash.com. Uh, Instagram is at drugs as weapons. No, I, I don't do. I'm sorry. Oh no, not anymore. I don't have time for any of the other social. <laughs> the Facebook, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, I know it's it, it can be a lot. There's a lot of different ones and everyone's trying to reach out and it's, yeah, yeah. it gets crazy after a while. Um, but yeah, uh, Mr. Parash, I really appreciate your time. Um, hopefully you have a great weekend and um, continued success. I, I enjoyed the book as well as the movies. So, I mean, I highly recommend anybody that hasn't seen them Thanks already, please, please get them as well. Um, quick thing before we go, everybody, um, for all you guys, I just want to give a shout out to everybody that's listening to us out in Australia. Uh, Italy, the UK, Ireland, South Africa, Netherlands, Norway, Norway, we're out there in Norway, um, Brazil, um, and the Faroe Islands. I have no idea where that's at, but I have heard of you guys and I appreciate you guys for stopping and listening to the show as well. Para toda mi gente que nos están escuchando en España y todos que nos están escuchando en Colombia también, les mando un saludo grande. Muchas gracias a todos. Uh, once again, everybody, if you guys are going to catch us on the go, you can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio as well. Twitter, at Defender Podcast. Instagram, at Truth Defender Podcast as well. And like I mentioned before, if you guys have any questions or comments for myself or our guests, uh, guests or topic recommendations, you can email us at thetruthdefender1776 at gmail.com. I really appreciate you guys stopping in for this episode. Uh, we'll be back again next weekend with another one. And until then, I hope you guys have a great weekend and stay safe out there. Stay Thank blessed and stay frosty. Thank you, sir. Have a great one. You too. Bye now. Bye-bye.